Welcome to Adversarial Learning. Hey, we're rolling. Uh, today, this is uh, we have Andrew and Joel, as always. And today we have Lisa Green from uh, Domino Data as a guest. Uh, Lisa, you want to tell our customers, our, uh, <laughs> tell our listeners, our customers, uh, listeners about yourself? Yeah, uh, my background is from physical sciences. And after physical sciences, I did bioinformatics and then tech nonprofit in the areas of like digital rights, uh, internet policy, open access publishing, open science, open source software, open data. Do you see a trend? Yeah, like the, <laughs> and, uh, the open crawl. I, I think when I met yeah. you, you were at open crawl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, common crawl, yeah. Common crawl, yeah. So that's, when people ask me about my background, they see things like, how do you go from lasers and optics, you know, that's what I did when I was a scientist, to like lobbying against SOPA to, you know, like whatever it is I'm doing today. And that really the thread is open systems. Mm -hmm. What's SOPA? Stop Online Piracy Act. Remember when the internet objected and Wikipedia was black for a day? Yeah. Remember that? I remember that. That was, that was super. Was that was before like, or after Jimmy Jimmy Wales would be like front and center in a big, huge banner ad every day? I, not every day. It's okay. just during fundraising season. Right. But, uh, I, think I got one of those yesterday. Okay. Contemporary with. Well, cool. So, Joe, you want to introduce the topic? I know this is near and dear to your heart. Yeah. So, uh, today we're going to be talking uh, about data ethics, which we, I think we've threatened many times to do an episode about data ethics and never really gotten around to it. But a couple weeks ago, there was a tech at Bloomberg. Well, the conference is not tech at Bloomberg. Uh, tweet, it's data for good exchange at Bloomberg. Data for good exchange. Um, and is exchange is it good exchange or data for good, end parentheses, exchange? It's an exchange it's about data, data for, for good. good. Exactly. I see exchange like talking, not exchange like I yeah. give you money and you give me data for credit. Right, not a transaction. Okay. Not, not bartering. Anyway, so they had this conference, um, and one of the things that came out of it was an initiative to create an ethics code. And so I saw this tweet by Tech at Bloomberg, breaking Bright Hives at Quiet Storm Nat and Data for Democracy's Lillian Huang announced initiative to create hashtag ethics code for hashtag data scientist, hashtag D4GX. And and so I, I quote tweet, tweeted that uh, with breaking fuck your hashtag ethics code, <laughs> uh, which kind of uh, gives a sense of, of what I think about it. And so I said to Andrew, we've got to do our yeah. fucking ethics episode yep. because I'm so angry about all this stuff and I, I got a lot to say. Yeah, we actually asked a few people to join and uh, some people politely declined and, and uh, some people impolitely declined. Uh, <laughs> I think they might have seen that tweet that said, <laughs> yeah. fuck your ethics code and said, I don't want to talk that to was, you guys. That was referenced. Yeah. But Lisa, Lisa graciously <laughs> agreed to join us. So Very graciously. Thanks, thanks a lot for being here, despite my tweet. Well, you know, that might have sparked your idea of like, it's time to do the data ethics episode. But come on, this has been in the air in so many ways and so many, you know, so I think that one tweet isn't, uh, is the only, isn't the only relevant thing. It was the, uh, what was the fire in Mrs. Uh, So-and-so's barn? What was that? Mrs. O'Leary. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, so starting off, I mean, I what is what is ethics? That's, what is ethics, yeah. or what are what, ethics? Oh, well, yeah. What's what define define ethics? Because to me, ethics is uh, I I don't think I know what that means. I know what law means, and I know what I mean. I understand the concept of morality. 
Um, I've taken countless uh, ethics classes at, at different jobs. And in those contexts, you know, there's there's stuff about bribery and, you know, dealing with foreign nations and things like that. And so it gets pretty, pretty heady. But I mean, so Wikipedia, <laughs> at least the snippet of Wikipedia that shows up on the Google search results page says ethics is a branch of philosophy that involves systematizing, defending and recommending concepts of right and wrong conduct. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like morality then, huh? Well, I was, yeah, I would say it's like almost this systemizing of morality, the capturing of morality. Okay. So data ethics then is how to do the right thing or the wrong or define what's wrong with anything having to do with data, whether it's collection or retention or application or, or et cetera, right? And these days, everything has to do with data. Yes, so. right. So data ethics is just ethics. But no, people... Uh, People talk about data ethics a lot. Things like, what should we worry about when we build an AI? What responsibilities do we have in terms of automation eliminating jobs? Is it okay if our algorithms are interpretable? Is it okay if our algorithms are biased in some ways? In what ways? Uh, how do we determine? Things like that. How do you how do you solve the trolley problem with a with a Tesla auto driving car? Exactly. Yeah. Which, which track should the self-driving trolley go down? Yeah. The track with one person or with five people? Yeah. So, Joel, you had a strong reaction to the concept of a code, right? Yeah. So, I like this definition that, that talks about kind of systematizing. In my mind, an ethics is a framework for making tough decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, when you have easy decisions, you know, should I run over this person lying in the road or should I step on the brakes? You don't need much of an ethics to make that decision. It's when you have something that I have an algorithm that actually predicts things really well, but some of the things it predicts, uh, I feel like I'm not supposed to predict. Uh, then that's where you need an ethics to decide, is this algorithm okay or not? Yeah. Is it good or not? Should I be using it or not? And, and notably, I, I think that people can and will come to different conclusions about those kinds of problems. Uh, and so I'm skeptical that if someone tries to codify, I guess conceivably a code of ethics could be, here are the sorts of things that we will take into account as we do our job and as we work with data, uh, in which case it's probably unobjectionable, but also not that useful. Or it could go a lot further and say, here are the sort of things that are unethical to do, in which case it's making a lot of those trade-offs for you based on however the person who wrote the code would make those trade-offs. Mm-hmm. But is it making a decision for you when it's not a law? And we can talk about whether ethics should be enforced by, you know, by, by community, by normative standards, or by law. Or, but it's not really making it for you if it's saying this is the way it should be, not this is the way it has to be. Right. So there is this question of how do we make this code binding? And I saw thrown around, you know, a number of tweets uh, and assertions saying basically, lawyers have to agree to an ethics code in order to practice law. And doctors have to agree to an ethics code in order to practice medicine. Why is it that data scientists don't have to agree to an ethics code in order to practice data science? So in that sense, it's not 100% a matter of law, but in some sense it is. You, you're, it's illegal to practice medicine if you're not accredited and licensed, and I don't think you can get licensed without agreeing to that ethics code. So the pushes I saw were kind of in that direction, at least. Yeah, but we're so far from having a license to practice data science. I mean, it's 
So to me, it's also sort of there's a cart after cart after I mean a, a, a barn door after the horse situation here because when we say data science and we talk about uh, you know uncomfortable predictions and unsavory predictions or you know it, when you open the hood of what uh, you know what credit how how do you how do you calculate credit risk or how do you calculate any other things like that and. How how does ad targeting actually work? I've seen people recoil in horror when they find out how ad targeting works. <laughs> you know, and so I, I think for people in the industry, we're all just like, ah, that's how it works. Jaded. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's sure it's it's it can be uncomfortable when you find out that, you know, that information about yourself is is sold multiple times over a year between different exchanges. But this is nothing new. This has been going on for for decades and, you know, maybe maybe these predictions weren't being made with you know, FizzBuzz and TensorFlow or whatever, uh, but they've they've been you know they've been drawing straight lines through through scatter plots for for a long time. But I, I think your advertising example is an interesting one because it points out that these kind of ethics are in many ways a very personal thing. Like I would not want to work in advertising. I I wouldn't. I, I would hate it. Is that aesthetics or ethics, I'm not sure. But would I want to extend that to say, you know what, there needs to be a code that no one should work in advertising? Uh, you know, well, I, I don't think so. That's, yeah. no, that's I, personal I, choice. Some people have a different value system. You know, I, I can give an actual uh, better example that predates my data science days. Um, a long time ago, many lifetimes ago, I used to work in finance uh, at a large software company in one of the sales organizations. Um, and one of my responsibilities is that I supported these salespeople who had these large enterprise customers who had signed, you know, multi-million dollar enterprise agreements using a very convoluted licensing system. And it was when it was time for them to uh, go talk to their customer about renewing the contract, they would come to me and say, I need you to go in the database and compute this really arcane effective licensing thing. And so I'd go through and like pull all this stuff and say, oh, you had this upgrade advantage agreement that, you know, expired in February of 2005, and you had this other one. And so when I add it all up using like a really complicated spreadsheet, you have effectively 48,000 licenses for this one software product. But we happen to know that you have, you know, 51,000 employees. Therefore, we think you are in violation of this agreement. And if you don't want us to call in the Business Software Alliance people, uh, you should probably, you know, re-up your enterprise agreement for an extra few million dollars a year. And and, and so that's how they would close some of these large deals. And that I felt like especially dirty about. Basically, here's this super arcane licensing system that took a specialist on the company side to figure out whether or whether or not and how you were in compliance with that or not. And then using that and, and this sort of BSA threat to force people to re-up these enterprise agreements, I, I felt terrible about that. And that was a big reason I quit that job was like... I, I can't feel good about myself doing what I feel like is extortion in some sense. Mm -hmm. But does that mean it should be, you know, against the financial analyst code of ethics to do something like that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that that's another question. It's like uh, you're in a private agreement um, with your customers. If the customers don't want to do business with you, that's their choice. That's the idea, right? So they may be aware. I mean, they they may feel locked in, but it's still their business choice to be there. I think that's a really good point, if, whether or not you have a choice. or It's not a binary, it's a spectrum. But 
Did you guys see the ACM's recent work on revising their code of ethics? No. Uh-uh. Well, <laughs> the first one was from 1992, so it probably needed a little revision, right? <laughs> you know, like, um, but one of the things that the threads that you see in the new versions, and they're still in draft and still accepting comments, is uh, this idea that computing now affects everyone, right? And so you don't really have a choice about some of these things that are being collected about you when we talked about the collection of data, the use of data and the storage of data, some of the things that are being collected, you either have a non-explicit choice, right? Like you didn't realize you were making a choice or you have no choice. And that's very different than a private agreement between a customer and a business. Like credit reporting data. Yes. That's a great example. Yeah. Health insurance data. Exactly. (laughs) I think I've had my identity stolen three times in the last five years. Twice were health insurers and once was uh, Equifax. What about Yahoo? I've been thinking hard about that. I can't remember ever using Yahoo for much. So like whatever they got from Yahoo, it's difficult for me to think of what they could have gotten about me that's interesting. Every account Uh, was stolen. With Yahoo. But like what what accounts do I have with Yahoo? I don't know. Flickr. Flickr. All my Flickr photos are public. So uh, the fun one fun thing I I read about that the other day was that um, that 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 Yahoo data set, there was evidence that it was sold three times. And one of the one of the buyers was somebody who insisted on handing over the information about ten uh, U.S. Uh, federal officials to confirm that their data was in there, and that's an indication that it was a foreign state um, yeah. trying to buy. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I probably have some interesting Yahoo Messenger chats from like two thousand two, but. Yeah. Uh, interesting to whom? <laughs> yeah, th- th- I think they'd be mostly interesting to me, actually. Yeah, like, wow, I used like, to be such an idiot, right? No, I'm still an idiot, yeah, but you know, I, like people that I don't even that I've forgotten about by now. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that person. Yeah. I used to chat with them online. Yeah, that could be kind of cool. So if I, you know, hackers, if you're out there and you have my old Yahoo chats, I'm uh, I'm kind of curious to see them. You so. send it How to much are you willing to pay for them? And my old AIM chats would be really interesting too. Just post them on a gist. That would be. That would actually be more, I think my AIM chats are much more interesting than my Yahoo chats. Okay, were, so. that's funny. Well, so the question that you, you raised, uh, Lisa, is uh, how much how much choice does a user have in having this stuff applied to them? I mean, there's other layers there, too. I mean, you know, I, just to, to in broad strokes, the things that have been on my radar in this type of, type of conversation include things like, you know, the mantra that algorithms are biased, uh, that one gets me. There's other things, but I, I think it is interesting. The feeling I think there's a feeling of helplessness as far as not having a not having a say, and you know having unfair results put in front of people, um, or just hilariously mis- mil- uh, ill-advised things like Tay uh, getting all racist in a day or whatever. So I saw a really interesting tweet uh, a couple weeks ago that really stuck with me about the whole Equifax thing, uh, and it said in essence. Don't buy into this whole identity theft narrative. Identity theft is a bullshit concept. What's really going on there is fraud. And the notion of identity theft is the big company's attempt to push the fraud risk onto you oh. as a person. Sure. Whoa. That, that's, wow. That's going to stick with me now. I know. it's Because if you think about it, okay, someone has my social. Okay, what are they going to do with my social? Well, they might try and open a credit card fraudulently. Okay, in some sense, that's Citibank's problem. But Citibank uh, or whoever, you know, can use this identity theft thing to make it my problem because it was my social. But there's nothing about 
the universe that says, okay, because this person used my social, that it has to, you know, come back and hassle me. It's sort of a, just another example of pushing the responsibility onto the user, which is, which is also funny because uh, Equifax just got a, a contract awarded uh, for the IRS for several million dollars. A couple dozen, maybe. Saw that no bid contract. Yeah, I love those. What were you saying? What were you going to say, Lisa? I was going to say, when did the concept of identity theft kind of start, right? And what are some examples when it's not fraud or negligence on the point of, you know, like that seems to me like it should be considered negligence rather than, oh, sorry, you got your identity stolen. But are there other examples like um, having information taken from you? Oh, someone would steal your mail, maybe, right? Like an individual would steal your mail and try to do something. When did we as a society start talking about identity theft and what are the various flavors of it? Yeah, I feel like it started to be that that phrase came up in late 90s, maybe um, the first time I was hearing about it. It does seem relatively new. Well, I, I think people have always sort of talked about it, but it's only recently that you've been able to do it at scale, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, you can't, it's hard to steal people's mail at scale. So you mm-hmm. steal one person's mail and then it's identity theft against that one person, but that's very different from doing it against millions of people. Yeah. And, and so I think as that scale grew, people became much more aware of the idea. Because if you're stealing mail and you know who the right target, you need to decide who the right target is. And those people have security guards. Yeah. And we were still, I think when we were saying theft in that case, it was talking about the person who took the mail, committed a crime, you know, they they committed a theft. But now somehow identity theft is something that just happens to you. Mm -hmm. If there's no, no responsibility outside of it's just something that happened. Oh, you know, I think this idea of like switching it from fraud to identity theft or like just, feeling helpless like yeah. we should pay attention to that i think it's funny yeah like because really what equifax did was they stole everyone's identity for them and so and it now it's sold now it's probably gets sold already so they've they've committed the crime effectively at scale uh, completely thoroughly and it's a crimeless crime right so they it's a it's a funny pr move to it's to a build great this, spin yeah, yeah it's amazing it. it not it it was stolen did well, you no, see he that one dude? I know that was amazing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I saw that quote from him yesterday. I think he said this was one person not doing their job. <laughs> and I'm like, no, like if one person not doing their job can oh, yeah. lead to this, then Something's you very, very fucked wrong. up as as a CEO, yeah. like a real long bad. Time ago and for a while, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, I think I mean there was a joke running about the uh, chief security officer having a, ma- a music degree, right? So, and that's so that people started like make, saying that's the problem. And it's like no, that's not the problem. The problem is they didn't do a good job. It doesn't matter what your degree is. So yeah, that's something that you can't really help but opt into. Okay, yes, you have a choice. You can do all cash transactions, and you know, all those kind of those are pretty extreme. And so on the spectrum, it's pretty close to like not really an option. And there are other things like. Uh, Health data. Didn't one of you mention health data? Oh, yeah. Just remember the thing from Google Brain and the, what is the British one? National Health Service. Do you remember that thing last year? No. I don't know if I have all the details right, so caveat on that. Like, I don't know exactly what Google traded an HS for. It might have just been money, but they needed money to train their AI. Or, sorry, money. They needed images to train their AI. <laughs> and uh, Data's the new oil, Lisa. I know, I heard, right? <laughs> they needed data, it was just funny. It's all confused in my head, yeah. yeah. They needed images, and they somehow made a deal with, like, the national health system. I don't think we have an equivalent in the U.S., because we kind of have, like, like, we have the CDC, and we have this and that in different branches. But this is, 
the organization that knows like everybody's prescription data, um, hospital records, things like that. Mm -hmm. And the laws in the UK said that you had to give direct consent. You had to give consent if it was an, uh, an indirect benefit to you. But if it was a direct benefit to you, you didn't have to give consent. And the example for that latter was if some physician had your records and they wanted to give them, and you came into the ER, and they could share those records. It was a direct benefit to you. You're in the emergency room, and they have your records. They can use them. But an indirect benefit, like this might do some research that would improve uh, understanding of the disease you have and lead to a cure, they needed to get consent. But they let Google Brain use the images under that idea of, like, no, no, this is directly benefiting them. These people all have a disease, and once the AI is trained and it understands this, we'll be able to understand the disease better and cure it. And luckily the UK government stepped in, but that was kind of crazy, right? Like None of these people knew anything about it. The health service and Google are making a deal, and none of these patients had any idea. It's a weird way to write the law, though, right? The, about direct and indirect benefit? Yeah. I don't, yeah. It's kind of a weird, I mean, it seems like it's so fuzzy, like there's some gray area there. Well, that's what they were working on. They were like arguing this gray area that it was direct uh, benefit, and that's why they didn't need to get them to do it, give explicit consent. They could just use the records because but it's for the good of the whole species. That's right. <laughs> that's right. AI is going to cure everything. I think you've probably seen those Azure machine learning ads in glossy magazines, right? There's a lot <laughs> of stuff glossy in magazines. Well, air, maybe in the airport, yeah. <laughs> Except this one, uh, my daughter for her birthday, someone gave her a magazine subscription, but it doesn't. The magazine doesn't have any ads in it. It's like Ladybug magazine or something. Oh yeah, it's got like poems and drawings and shit like that. I so the, I actually, yeah, I thought the media, I thought the uh, the ad was the message. Oh, I I think that this AI into medical records is not going away. I interviewed at a company uh, last year. Uh, should I say which one? I shouldn't say which one. No. Probably um, not. Yeah. You'd say large, like software company, startup company. Uh, it was a it was a bookstore, but I won't say which okay. bookstore. And uh, I was interviewing, I was interviewing for a, a top secret team, and the team was so top secret that they wouldn't tell me what the team did. <laughs> um, How would you like this job? We can't tell you what it is. <laughs> but they that bookstore they does that a lot for for the for the secret projects. It's pretty funny. And, and from the from the hints they provided, it seemed like it was something involving AI over electronic medical records. Um, but I didn't get the job. So I think I that's a great field. I just think, you know, I mean, if people don't want their information shared, it should be pretty cut, cut and dried. Um, I mean, geez, you know, if you can, if you can free up some radiologists from just doing the, the rote grunt work and, you know, free them up to do a little more discovery on, you know, what their, what, what their false positives and negatives were and, you know, figure out what they look for. That's awesome. Uh, what what if it's anonymized though? I don't see a. Pro I mean, I am not afraid of my MRI getting on on the internet. I don't care. Who cares? No, no, well, not MRIs, but like you know, when I go to the doctor and I tell him, you know, here's what I'm suffering from, he types it all down in my medical record, right? Oh, nobody wants that. No, nobody wants that. Text. On, they don't want the text so much. I don't think. I mean, talking. I was just talking about images, but I mean, yeah. Um, I think with where you know AI and, and deep networks are going, they probably will want the text pretty soon, if if not already. I mean, that'd be metadata about the image in any case, right? Well, I feel like you're focusing a little bit too narrowly on images. There is, first, let's kill all the radiologists and have our AIs that look at the MRIs or the X-rays or the CAT scans or whatever and point to, you know, here's a lesion that means something, something, whatever. It's about, it's about all the medical jargon I know. But you can also imagine that 
hey, here is a bunch of free-form medical records of people. And let's say I put a flag in each one that says, had a heart attack with the dates, and I have the dates of all the texts. And now I, now I take an AI or deep network or whatever and say, okay, let's look at the text and figure out, you know, what was going on with all these people leading up to their heart attacks. Yep. Uh, sure. No, I think text data is valuable, but I, I can't imagine, like, that's much harder to anonymize. Like, Andrew just said he doesn't care if his MRI is on the web, but I don't know if anybody wants to, well, I haven't been sleeping well, and I think these are the factors that are going on, you know, yeah. like, I wouldn't want my psychoanalyst uh, sessions <laughs> transcribed or anything right. like that, you know. Yeah, the, you should stop doing them over Skype, right? <laughs> but how do we how do we get to decide? That's the question. How do people know when they're consenting to something? Do we need to make it explicit? I mean, it's part seemed, of the part of the code of ethics, right? Of the medical or the data science. Oh, that's ethics? a good question. <laughs> that's a really good question, though. Should the should the medical code of ethics be uh, be extended to include that type of thing? I mean, there is you know there is confidentiality in there, I, I believe. Um, so, so 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 here's an interesting question because I actually looked this up when it came up last week. Do you know what's in the doctor's code of ethics? Nope. First, do no harm. Right. After that, it's I actually not in there. It's not. That's, that's, that's the, the, the that's snake the thing. That's the snake thing. Okay. Yeah, but that's actually not in the. One, the code of ethics actually varies by state. Every Ooh, state has their own slightly different one. States, right? Um, uh, <laughs> but two, the, the Hippocratic Oath is actually gener- generally not part of the code of ethics. Hmm. So, so that's just, wow, what's that's like it? the Perry Mason version, huh? <laughs> the, things about, you know, treating patients as individuals and always acting in the patient's interest and things like that. Th- things that are mostly a little bit vague. I don't have it pulled up. But anyway... I, I thought about this because some of the dialogue around this data science code of ethics was, you know, we think it's important for a doctor to have a code of ethics. We think it's important for a lawyer to have a code of ethics. Shouldn't we find it just as important uh, for data scientists to have a code of ethics? And I wanted to ask those people, you know, I, I didn't get to talk to any of them, but okay, you think it's important for a doctor to have a code of ethics. Do you have any idea what that code of ethics <laughs> actually says? And I don't think most people do. I looked at it and I didn't know what it said. And the reality is I chose my doctor because I like his point of view. Not because uh, there's this one code of ethics, and I expect that he'll, you know, do whatever it says. Yeah, right. I mean, you you would probably select your doctor if you liked their approach, and they disagreed with the code of ethics to some in some way, right? Yeah, yeah. So I actually. I chose my doctor because I found this website for like paleo doctors, and and he was like (laughs) the only real doctor on it. So. (laughs) Okay. Well, did you read what the Code of Ethics says in Washington? I'm trying to pull it up right now. but That'd be, that'd be interesting or hella boring. I don't know. But I, I, didn't know it, uh, I didn't know that it varied state to state, too. And I'm, I guess it, it varies state to state for attorneys, too, yeah? Probably. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a national one. But it's always funny. The, you know, these things are, they bubble up from, you know, your, your close acquaintances up to your tribe, up to your city, to your state, to your... It's actually really long. It has nine. The AMA one has nine chapters: opinions on patient-physician relationships, opinions on consent, communication, and decision making, opinions on privacy, confidentiality, and medical records, opinions on genetics and reproductive medicine, opinions on caring for patients at the end of life, opinions on organ procurement and transplantation, opinions on research and innovation, opinions on physicians in the health of community, opinions on professional self-regulation. Yeah, I remember when I looked at it, the organ procurement and transplantation one was the one I found most objectionable. Why? It took a stand against allowing people to pay for donor organs, and with like I, a I little, don't even think we should go down this path. <laughs> I'm sorry, I asked. With a little, with a little caveat, with like maybe a little bit, but like not very much. Right. So anyway, 
yeah, we don't, we don't have to talk about that today. <laughs> let's but. have another. Let's talk about this other time of why you think people should be allowed to pay for organ. <laughs> you can come back. You can be our second repeat customer. That would be amazing. This is really fun. But I wanted, when we when you said I said first do no harm, and you said that's the Hippocratic oath, and that's not actually in the ethics. That reminds me of in the beginning when you were saying that you you know you're not sure about this whole idea. And how can people tell you what to do? The difference between a normative standard, the Hippocratic Oath, this mm. is something we believe as physicians, mm-hmm. and a law, the code of ethics over which you can lose your license to practice medicine. Do you um, object to both of those being applied to data science or just one? And if so, which one? I don't know that I object to a code of ethics. I think uh, what rubbed me the wrong way when I was watching that unfold during the day was... Um, there was there were a couple of quotes that bugged me. So one said something like, you know, everyone in this room should agree on such and such. And I thought that was interesting because it's a very select group, uh, certainly a, a very particular demographic. Um, and then, you know, to me, it's like pff, just a little room, huh? You know, like <laughs> yeah, that was my first thought. Like, the equivalent of like a, a, you know, the cigar smoke filled uh, back dealings, right? So it's just funny to have. It felt self righteous to me, and and a bit, you know, preachy, and and I think you know, over the past couple of years, that's that's been a reaction I've had to this type of conversation too. I think for me, I also saw the thing, or the part that said, you know, we want to talk to the community and get a consensus around ethics and produce a code that everyone in the community can agree upon. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly it. And, and I thought, you know what? I know some of you guys, and I know that most of these topics I'm not going to agree with you on. And so either you're going to produce a code that has nothing in it, which is the intersection of all of our opinions, <laughs> the null code. Or, or you're going to produce a code that actually not everyone agrees with. Um, and almost certainly the latter is the case. And so that was another part of why it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I don't I don't have any understanding of the history of the Hippocratic Oath or how it became kind of so generally accepted. But what if there were multiple codes of ethics and you could say these are useful for starting a dialogue and for being thought-provoking, like say um, – before you do a deploy, you have like a checklist. All right, you don't actually have to go through each one and like mark the check, but it makes you think about what you're doing, right? So if you look at some of the stuff that, what, how do they pronounce the acronym? F-T, F-A-T-M-L. So they say FATML. What do they say? I, Those guys. I say FATML. Okay, thanks. Um, They're accurate, timely. Transparent, I think. Okay. But so like those guys have one. ACM is working on one. Like what if you know, a dozen different groups worked on one and you could fork one or you could merge two or something. It's just a tool for stopping and thinking about what we're doing, about having a discussion, having a shared vocabulary. Certainly that's not objectable. There is a problem with one group standing up and saying, we are making the code and we want to hear from the community as if it's a homogenous group. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, part of, part of what's tough is, um, under the umbrella of ethics, when I when I hear these things discussed, are things like ill-advised deployments, like you know the Google Image Gorilla issue, and you know racist Tay and things like this. Like they're just really dumb and poorly <laughs> tested things. It's not like unethical in any so way. So incompetent. Yeah, it's just really bad work, and like you know. So I mean, to me, that's like that. There's like this sort of pitchfork and torches flavor to this 
ethics code discussion that I want to like clear the decks on and say like, no, that's not ethical. That's just bad. And that ought to be self-policing within the, the organization that built it, you know? But I think most of the, most of these topics, there is not unanimity on. No. So, so you, it's hard to be self-policing when not everyone agrees that it should even be policed, right? Well, no, I mean, like that's, so at, so let's say you know, like the large search engine company that released a bad, you know, a bad image Fully. classification Fully. thing. Fully. They should say th- that should have gone through more layers of testing QA. and it didn't. Yeah. And, and, you know, people argue, well, there's just not enough people of color on the team and that's why it went uh, haywire. Maybe, maybe that's true, but you know, it may just be like engineers with their heads down like this is really cool this is awesome here's the training set we have unfortunately it makes some bad predictions so i mean i i don't even i mean i'm not saying self-policing at all i'm just saying like the organization when it releases something that is supposed to be good for their for their image you know it's if it's good for their image it's going to be you know pleasant to people to use and, and I, I don't i don't see that as an ethical thing at all yeah this is a quality thing right but is doing your best work and doing good work and all that, is that an ethics? I don't know. I don't think so. Like, I don't, maybe like kind of. I mean, so here's, here's uneth- un- yeah. unethical data science would be like, I have access to a user database and I pilfer it and sell it. That's unethical. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear and, yeah. and illegal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you don't have to be a data scientist to do that, right? No, you don't. Well, let's go back to the physician analogy. If you come in, if you like come in hungover to do surgery, is that unethical? Which they do, by the way. <laughs> right. Or an airline pilot or something, is it unethical, you know, to be not at your best, right? right? So if you're just, so if that's true, that it's unethical to be uh, drunk or, sorry, hungover or a little tipsy in, in flying commercial airliner, now you're in a spectrum where you could argue that doing kind of a, uh, for lack of a better word, half-assed job on something that would have like social impact or have impact on individuals, that's kind of on the same spectrum as being hungover and flying commercial air later. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, people are doing half-assed jobs all over America all day long. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. I just, I don't know if it's framed as an ethical thing or if it's just, I don't know. If going to work hungover is wrong, I don't want to be right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah. So to me, like, it, 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 it's nice. It'd be, it'd be good to get the concept of what ethics is scoped right. And I feel like it's, it's this, it's this sort of fuzzy cluster that, you know, some things could fit in if you just push it out, the push the boundary out a little bit. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, I think, I don't know. It's, I think it's, it's, it's a very broad topic. I mean, kudos to people to, you know, for, for bringing it up as something to think about and talk about. As long as it's not, you know, some small cabal of, you know, New Yorkers, say, uh, deciding what's right for people out here. I, I guess from my perspective, if I'm going to a doctor for some sort of treatment and he or she knows that for some reason he or she is not capable of doing their best work, I, I feel like I should be informed about that. Hey, you know, I'm not feeling that great. And uh, I figure there's maybe a 20% chance that the surgery uh, goes badly. Like, I mean that's I, I, that's medical malpractice. So I, I want to know that. So what's what's data malpractice? Well, In, I would imputing, say security, data security malpractice sure. is Equifax. Sure. Yep. So exfiltration of data, not securing it, access access rights not managed well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing about, algorithmic malpractice. 
<laughs> well, I was going to say the hard thing about Equifax is that it's possible. I don't know all the details, but it's possible that like no one person made a wrong decision. And it's more that people made a lot of decisions that in conjunction with one another led to that situation. Right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like organizationally, they didn't have the right security practice in place. It's a caricature, and it's possible that there's some guy, and it was, it was his job to apply the patch, and he said, eh, fuck it, I don't feel like applying the patch, I'm going out to play golf today. Like, that, that's sort of a cartoon version, mm-hmm. um, and there it's very cut and dry, but I that's probably like, not what happened. I think what they were on a really old version of Apache Struts uh, that had been patched for, I think, 10 years or 8 years. Um, so it was just a, it was a, it was a bad upgrade uh, policy, uh, was what I, what, uh, what I read. But yeah, algorithmic. So I mean, the said so the um, the canonical example of algorithmic um, unfairness is using zip codes to decide credit risk, right? Because yeah. zip code is a proxy for ethnicity. Absolutely. So is that malpractice? Uh, I think if you are, if it's if it's, there's no opt in, I think that's unfair. Um, I, I think there's a lot of things that held up uh, to a close examination would fall apart like that, you know. But at the same time, like given any set of variables, you can always say, you know what? It's unfair not to include this one other variable, right? Yeah, or to include one, yeah. Is Facebook uh, uh, malpracticing by uh, allowing a foreign state to upload all the voting records uh, of Americans they obtained and target people by name for advertising? (laughs) Can you do that? That's what happened. They targeted people by name? Yes, sir. I didn't think you could target people. Individual, well, individual level, and maybe not name, but individual level, because they did have voting records. Um, so, I mean, is that malpractice, or is it just, you know, to, Let's just step away from malpractice and maybe use the word negligence, which I feel more comfortable with. I don't know if I can define malpractice, actually. Okay. Right. Um, but, no, I think that Facebook is negligent. I think that Facebook, you know, uh, and then going back to the idea of Equifax, is it a cartoon of one guy who just is not going to do it, and I'm going to go golf, or is it a systematic thing? It's much more likely, <laughs> almost certainly, it's a systematic thing. I think Facebook yeah. has a systematic problem of not caring enough about privacy and not optimizing for not checking. Like when I said before, what if there were multiple codes of ethics that were suggestions for things you should think about? I think that Facebook thinks about none of those things. Yeah, I mean, part they're, they're driven by traffic, right? I mean, they add impressions and yeah. traffic, yeah. So that's like they're, incent- they're not incented to, to make sure this is okay. Well, in fact, I think they're even driven. I'm so I'm sorry for uh, speaking over you, but I think not only are they incented by traffic, but also how precisely and how well can we target? Mm-hmm. And that is exactly the risky behavior that allows you to have something happen, like what happened. Yeah, like what if what if I were suicidal and somebody targeted me with an ad that said "kill yourself" and I killed myself? Would Facebook be would be uh, be liable for that? Then Facebook would be just like Twitter, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Delete your account and kill yourself. Well, I like I like the idea of multiple multiple codes that that people can use to develop. I think this is definitely early days, and I, I also think that the you know, the broad strokes and the sort of what do you call it manifesto level uh, language I think is is a little premature. Mm-hmm. But, but but if a lot of these problems are you know emergent or systematic, then it could be the case that no one person is really making bad decisions. Um, in which case that, you know, even having a code of ethics potentially doesn't help, right? If everyone thinks they're doing the best within the constraints of the system they're in. 
Mm-hmm. But the code of ethics wouldn't necessarily just be like your individual actions. It could be at a company level. You know, I don't, I, it'd be interesting to see if there's any code of ethics for security folks and things like that. I feel like that's still a pretty wild west situation. So here's a, boy, I'm going to be unpopular with this one. So there was this thing a few weeks ago with Facebook where someone determined that you could target any interest that people put in, even if it was an unsavory interest. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you could run an ad targeting, I think, Jew haters was the example. Yeah, putting people in ovens and stuff like that. I think there was... Um, so clearly the people... Well, actually, it's unclear whether anyone other than the journalist uh, who discovered that was using that to target ads. But is it a priori wrong to be able to target those people? I'm not sure. I don't have an answer for that. So like, and what I kept thinking about is, have you seen those news articles about the the black guy who's like mission in life is to meet KKK members and like befriend oh, yeah, yeah, them? Yeah, them yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I thought, what if you know, what if there's an equivalent to that for anti-Semitism, and they want to reach out to Jew haters and like, yeah, you know, win them over, right? Yeah. Facebook right now, well, until that thing would allow them to do that, and and now they can't. So so you know, like there's. There's clearly unsavory things you can do with that kind of targeting, but there's also potentially good things you can do with that targeting. Right. Suicide prevention instead of uh, encouragement or whatever. Sure. Right. So, so just like taking that totally off the table, you know, yes, it prevents <laughs> some bad things. Clippy for anti It looks like you hate Jews. Would you like help with that? <laughs> right. <sighs> yeah. We're studying them. You know, studying them, I think. <laughs> You're I'm just reading, serious. Reading studying anti-Semitism. Uh, my uh, my roommate uh, has a side project going that he's got this subreddit that is like an extreme right wing, uh, anti-Semitic, anti-people of color, anti-everything. And he's crawling and collecting the content of the subreddit to do NLP work on it and kind of look for trends in understanding. And I think that's beneficial, right? Like where if we decide that that behavior is detrimental to society, then where did society go wrong that we have? And how is it? Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? How is it shifting and stuff, you know? So, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Should you be able to enter Jew hater to, in order to identify anti-Semites? What's the risk, like the trade-off of if people are using it to find like-minded people and uh, form groups that further popularize those views? That's, in my mind, dangerous to society. But should you know? Should Reddit uh, allow those communities, or should it be trying to weed them out? Um, is it better if people like your roommate uh, can get at them and you know scrape what they say and analyze it, versus if they're driven underground somewhere, yeah. or maybe if they're driven underground, they don't exist? I don't know. It's a funny one because it seems like I think that those extreme cultures are pretty small, uh, but they get so much attention. And I mean, I I don't know. I don't. I, I, it, like there's so much attention to that type of stuff online. Uh, and it seems like they're like very, very active and they make themselves known. Um, so I, there was an, there was an article in the stranger that I just saw today. So the stranger is the Seattle, uh, that, alternative weekly that articles. Terrible. It is terrible. <laughs> uh, it, he knows what I'm talking about already. Um, so someone, there was like some secret meeting of Nazis or white supremacists in Seattle. Uh, and this one guy snuck in and the article was pretty bad, but the whole meeting was like 70 people. And it seems like not all of them were even from Seattle. Yeah. Like they came in from other cities too. And so part of me is like, you know what? Like you can find 70 people who believe in pretty much anything. Flatters um, or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Like, like if you told me there's like 7,000 people there, then that would be like a different story. Yeah. But 
but wait, let's talk about this for just a second. I mean, I know this isn't our topic, but Virginia happened, and people were on the news. Newscasters, broadcasters made a decision about the stance and messaging and position they were going to take, and they said things like, there's good people mixed in there, and I don't know. And we, there was not just universal outrage expressed. We had to have conversations about, hey, guys, we fought a war about this, and, you know, so I don't care how many people were in Virginia so much as I care about the reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Much like when the Google Manifesto came out, it's really easy to say that that's we uh, should oh, I say the with the Google, James Google Demore guy. Yeah, the yeah. James Demore thing. It's really easy to say this person is kind of a, is a misogynist or whatever. But then, how about the fact that afterward, thirty three percent of Google employees who participated in the survey agreed with his point of view. That's interesting. So that's to me, like, I mean, it's easy to poo-poo these guys on the subreddit or whatever and say there's only 70 people in the room and, like, you know, this. But to me, it's the larger social reaction. And this is yeah. completely off topic of ethics. I'm we, sorry. We don't, we we don't follow topics. We always go off topic. Yeah. Yeah. That art, I, I read his manifesto. I don't know if you've actually read the thing. It's so poorly written and researched. It's amazing. It was just, I, I was like, why, why does anybody give a, give a shit, man? This is like... You don't even. I wouldn't even need to fire this dude. It'd just be like, don't do that. And we could said, you know, this is obviously not how Google views things. And but it's it's it is it's interesting that you said thirty three percent of all employees agreed with it, huh? No, I don't. No, think no, that's no, right. no. Are the people who participated in the survey are the people who participated. Thirty three percent of the Google employees who participated in the survey. Oh, uh, does it? That means nothing to me. It was okay. Here's another. Eh. We don't have to spend too much time on the manifesto, but I was surprised by the number of people who were defending the general concept. Like I heard from people with whom I interact, not yeah, yeah. so social but professional colleagues, say things like, well, it's a shame that he's a misogynist, but his general point is good, that he should feel free to believe whatever he wants. And I just was stunned and had well, a hard time sh- holding it together. He should be free to think whatever he wants. I agree with that. I'm not. Oh, no, but at Google, the idea was that that Google should have this uh, philosophical diversity. I think that's the concept that, like, if you're a racist, that's just a diverse viewpoint. And, you know, like, if we're going to have diversity on gender or uh, orientation or, or, you know, then we should have diversity of thought, including far right wing people. To be fair, I mean, why would you not want to have diversity of thoughts? I do, and to a certain degree, but there is a point at which it becomes, it's not a matter of debate. The concept that women by, women are genetically just not suited for doing engineering tasks or STEM tasks, that's not up for debate. I don't think that's what his manifesto said, though, right? There is de- there he are did say that. Say he does yeah. say that. He, he absolutely he, says that. It's like a men's rights activist uh, summary uh, sprinkled yeah. throughout with... Um, statistics and side asides about you know basically their you know women's emotional states and oh, things oh, like women that. are like just more um neurotic just generally across the board women are more neurotic. that's not up for debate i okay? mean the, like, yes the, i want diversity of thought i want someone who likes trump and someone who doesn't like trump someone this that and other thing but i i'm not it's not up for debate about like whether you know, people of a certain in, 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 the, in the clinical or, sense, like uh, in psychology, neurotic means a specific thing. And isn't it true that, you know, distributionally women score higher on that dimension than men? On neuroticism or emotional or neuroticism? Well, I don't think I so. Say, I, I saw one study that, that supported it, and I, I, I don't, I don't, that's not enough for me. Also, I also know a lot of fucking neurotic men, so I, I don't know. Okay, I'm, looking, I'm looking at Wikipedia. <laughs> Um, right. I, okay, Wikipedia is Wikipedia, right? I'm pretty sure that the word 
I believe the word was neurotic, but possibly not. But but there was definitely statements that women are just unsuited for STEM fields, and that we should stop having programs to encourage more women in STEM because just let them do the things they're good at, and stop trying to make it fifty fifty. Knitting, knitting, <laughs> pottery, <laughs> emotion, soft skills. You know, soft skills. Soft skills, which we've we've established on here, are actually the hard skills. <laughs> so being you know regulating emotion at work is the hard skill. Yeah, so... Well, we're I mean, way off of data ethics. I think... Um, this is actually... I mean, this ties into it because, you know, his his manifesto was about, you know, using company time and <laughs> publishing something on Google Docs and... No. Um, well, no, it's, it somewhat ties into, like, I guess we could bring this back to is there, is there an ethics and in interpretation of data? And I think that brings me to quickly watch how I make these connections. It's the jump between all of them, but it works <laughs> from James to Moore. And is there, an, is there an ethics to how you interpret information? And then there is, can something be ethical if it is uninterpretable? Yeah. I mean, that, that, I mentioned a little bit with the, um, you know, the, the rallying cry of algorithms are biased these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an interesting one. And, you know, I, I've hashed this out with people and, you know, it's a bad interpretation to say that the algorithms are biased, but no, not. math is not biased. Nope. The, I mean, the underlying data comes from a biased society or, or behaviors and stuff like that. But, um, well, so if interpretable, understandable, right? Oh yeah. Um, if something is complicated, if complex machine learning, if you have a neural net underneath something, can you really explain it? It is not as simple as like, oh, you know, someone could say, well, I want to know the coefficients. I want to know the weight, yeah. which factors went into it or something. That's actually, like that's a, an issue in, yeah, in a lot of, a lot of uh, industries where they need, need models to be um, auditable, right? So mm-hmm. people prefer linear models because you do have the alpha, beta, et cetera. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it, I don't, I don't see it as that important to be able to interpret a model. I mean, it's, you know, what, what are the results and, and how are things going? I, I, I think that. There should be freedom to deploy things and do A/B testing and see how things go. And I mean, I don't, I don't know that that you know, that surfacing certain products higher than others is is an ethical question. So you say how things go. So you build a model. Mm-hmm. You can't. It's you can't really fully interpret it. It's learning on its own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what are you evaluating it on? Like what is what is an improvement or what is, is what, what makes it a good model? That'd be like conversion or, you know, adds to cart or purchases, um, you know, improving basically your bottom line as a retailer. Oh, I think that's a dangerous idea that the only metric of whether or not a model is good is uh, profit. Uh, well, I mean, it depends what I, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know how to define ethics here. So, well, I mean, I, I would say every model is designed to do something right. And part of designing a model to do something presumably is designing some sort of criteria uh, for what it means for the model to be doing a good job or not. So, you know, if your model is designed to decide whether someone gets a loan, you could have metrics around what percentage of people default? How much money do we make on average? You know, mm-hmm. things like that. But I don't. I feel like every model has its own set of criteria that it's measured against. Performance criteria, but if you include something about, let's say, I know ethics, none of us can define it, but if you include something about just just or what's right, right? So there's performance criteria on who oh, should okay. get a loan or what rates, and then what about if you realize? 
wow, my model is doing like something that it's uh, charging higher rates to people of color, people who are did like some, you know, something like that. Is should that be a criteria? Should that be considered when you're like, well, the performance of this one is better, but it is perpetuating a problem in that it's giving low interest, you know, loans or more loans to a group that has already has a certain amount of privilege in society yeah. and it's excluding groups that are disadvantaged. And so that's just going to perpetuate a problem in society, even though it's a better model on performance metrics. Well, we should go back to the other one that doesn't perform quite as well, but doesn't have this problem of, wow, 90% of the people it's giving the great loan rates to are people of privilege. Yeah, I think that's something to look at. My perspective is two things. Uh, one, some of these things are legal, right? So if the law says you got to do something, then you got to do something. The other one goes back to what I said about ethics being a framework for making trade-offs. Some organizations will say, we want to make money. That's all we care about. Some organizations will say, you know what? It's important to us to you know, redress some grievances in society and make up for privileges that exist or whatever. And so we want to take those things into account. It's, it, but it's hard for me to say that like one or the other is unethical. It's hard for you to say that it's not, uh, either continuing or exacerbating or creating a social injustice is unethical. Right. What like, you consider a social injustice, I might not consider a social injustice. It's, uh, okay. I, I, I mean, social injustice itself is in, is in the eye of the beholder. There's some people who Absolutely. say, Absolutely. if you charge, you know, white people higher rates, that's an injustice. Yeah. Um, yep. There's other people who would say that's only fair. Can you think of something you would define as a social injustice? Or as a detriment to society? How about that one? Like we decided that child labor was detrimental to society, not just individuals. Can you think of something that you would define as detrimental to society? Uh, boy, as a parent, I can kind of see the upside of child labor, to be honest. But, <laughs> hmm. Okay, so what about the, the, the retail example? Let's say that uh, there's an online retailer, a grocer, uh, and they're finding that they, they have better they're, they're making more, more of a margin on sugary drinks. So they start, you know, surfacing things higher if they're sugary drinks. Like, is that, is that something that should be a law uh, illegal or is it unethical or is it just like, you know, is it just like capitalism as it, at its finest selling the most cigarettes it possibly can for as long as possible? So I think that's a good example for me because I'm actually like super anti-soda and anti-sugary drink. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's way detrimental to society, the way that we push those on people and the way that we encourage people to drink them. But do I think it's unethical right. to push those on people? Yeah, that's, that's hard, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that, but I think it's, I think it's the same problem as charging black people higher rates to, just because of the zip code they live in, for instance. Um, I mean, it's like, uh, gee, that's, that's kind of, that's not great. And I mean, as a company, you know, as a company, do you owe society the most healthy choice at all times? I would, I, I would be afraid of trying to legislate that. And, you know, I mean, we all have the freedom to not drink soda and to not smoke cigarettes. Uh, but we also decided that you couldn't put cigarette ads on television. Yeah, I know. So that's, so that it's like, uh, I mean, so this is, I think maybe what we're talking about is data mores instead of ethics. <laughs> I like it. You, and, we should uh, okay. Just now keep we should redefining our own group. Yeah, let's <laughs> our own group, right? That's gonna make. No, well, let's see. We're not talking data ethics. We're talking data mores, and we'll mores. see you know, all this other group. <laughs> and then we can. 
If you just keep re- redefining the problem and adding abstractions, you know, then that's <laughs> that's the way to argue your way out of having to solve it. But but there's a you know there, there's something interesting here. Um, so I build a model and and it says I want to should I should I offer people loans or not? And it does something that you know maximizes default probability or, or minimizes default probability or whatever. But it uh, perpetuates some inequity that's out there. And I say okay, you know, I can tweak this to not perpetuate that inequity at the cost of giving people loans that they're like much more likely than average to default on. Yep. Is that, is that good? Well, that's, I mean, is it, yeah, it's, is it something that, is it something that we need to ask people to take a risk on? I mean, you could, you could argue that certain industries, you know, are just running a racket and gee whiz, gee, sorry. Most industries. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, do you want to, do you want to, Choose your ideal society, and then work backwards from there, and uh, see what you have to do to get there. You know, uh, I don't know. It's not like this is definitely a political political conversation. It's not just data, it, but it's really easy getting people to agree on stuff. So I, I have a lot of hope for the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really easy to get people to agree on stuff, and then to have the discipline to stick with their values. Totally. Yep. <laughs> yep. And then following yeah, through and executing. Yeah. Oh yeah, I feel like what do you think? Like. February, March of 2018, we should have this thing. You know. Sure. Yeah. But, but one thing I thought of earlier, and I forgot to mention, is uh, you guys know the Joel test for software engineers? <laughs> no. So the, the Joel, so Joel Spolsky made oh, up this yeah. Joel test, and it's like 10 questions about like what a place is to work at. And, you know, they're, they're Joel's idea of what makes a great workplace. So we have continuous integration. Developers get their own offices. Uh, I can't remember what they are. But anyway, some subset of the industry uses this as kind of a self-creating thing for their job posting. So they'll oh, say, you know, yeah. here's who we're hiring, you know, Joel test, we, we score eight out of 10, here's here's the ones. Um, and so I was thinking about that when we were talking about these kind of voluntary opt-in codes of ethics, you could have like the Joel code and someone could say, you know, at this country we, or this company, uh, we agree to the Joel code and we score eight out of 10 on it. And, you know, the one that says we prevent your information from getting stolen by Russian criminals, you know, we, we don't subscribe to that one, <laughs> but the like rest that. of them, we're all, we're all pretty good. So that, that could be, maybe, maybe I should make up that, uh, Joel code. Yeah. Yeah. Another Joel or code. like, uh, organic things. Are, well, I guess organic is regulated now, but, um, there are groups that you can say, you can say, do we, like you said, we get this score on like, what's yeah. the one for the buildings, right? Oh yeah, the uh, yeah the leads. Yeah, leads. Like we could, you know, so you could have a variety of ones, and you could choose which ones you want to rate on. Well, there's the Google code, right? Don't be evil. That's that's. I mean, it, it, that. I thought they repealed that. Yes, they did. <laughs> they were like, wait a minute, <laughs> that's this too is hard. Really limiting. This is really <laughs> <laughs> this is really cutting into our bottom line. This, the board does not like that. No, it's a, don't be evil too often. Don't be yeah. evil, or, or don't be too evil. <laughs> don't be don't be any more evil than you have to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> as long as there's a benefit to the customer, you can be evil. What did they replace it with? I don't know. The Demore Manifesto. <laughs> no girls allowed. Exactly. <laughs> God. Well, we are coming up on the hour, or we're just over the hour, actually. But I, I do feel like, you know, we could have you back if you felt like it. Um, there's probably more to talk about. Yeah. I Any, think anything we didn't thing. cover that we were supposed to, or that Andrew and I were totally wrong about and we need to be corrected on, or... <laughs> Do people? Um, no, I could. There's there are no right answers in this kind of discussion. Uh, I think it, one thing with data ethics, there are things about uh, doing good, 
we mostly talked about not doing harm. Yeah, that's and true. I think if you talk about ethics, doing good, right? So we talked about the uh, Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, and Google's thing for a minute there of do no, don't be evil. But what about the idea of like you have an ethical or moral responsibility to do good? And I think that's the other side mm-hmm. of good ethics. So we yeah. could have our second one on that. Yeah. Cool. Doing lifting. Doing good. Doing good. Data for good. Did anything you you wanted to to pitch or or blur or uh, plug while you're here? Uh, the upcoming nope. meetups, Book, Twitter account. You know, uh, uh, some. My, even my Twitter account. Thing. I have to say, I really started neglecting my Twitter account right about uh, I don't know November of last year, and <laughs> I've never quite picked it right back up again. But my Twitter account is uh, at Budica or Budicia, as the Brits I think pronounce it. But like the how do you spell that? B o u d i c c a. It's my dog's name. One of my dogs. Not how names. I would have guessed, but cool. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been fun. <laughs> you you should come back. Twitter, Twitter misses you. <laughs> no, I'm I'm back a bit, but I just mostly retreat, and I don't have. I don't know. I just it was different ever since. Uh, you know. There was there was a thing on Twitter the other day. Um, uh, John Scalzi, who's like a left wing science fiction writer, um, was oh, yeah, complaining. He was complaining I don't know about his how. Views, but I like his fiction. What was he complaining about? Oh, how in Trump's America he can't, you know, produce as much fiction because he has to devote too many brain cycles to freaking out and things like that. Um, and then Venkatesh Rao, who I can't describe him, he's the proprietor of Ribbon Farm. Uh, anyway, he he made some tweet to the effect of, you know, if if you're if you're a good writer, then you can't help but be affected. Like basically if your writing quality and output hasn't changed since last November, you're not a good writer. Yeah. 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 I I haven't finished composing my tweet mocking him for it, but I will. (laughs) Well, I guess here's my pitch to you guys is let me know when you're in San Francisco Bay area. Uh, let me have a cocktail party for you. And yeah, that's my pitch is to you too. Okay. Okay. So Andrew is always down there. I'm going to be down there November. I want to say November 9th that weekend. Um, going to be speaking at the Open Data Science Oh, yeah, ODCS. ODCS. Oh. Or ODSC. Yeah. ODSC. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I've spoken at their conferences a number of times now, and they always invite me back for some reason. So When is that? I think it's November 9th, I want to say, at the at the Hilton in San Francisco Airport or Hyatt San Francisco Some, some hotel oh, San Francisco stay at the airport. That's awesome. Right. Is it? No. Super awesome. I know. Um, I mean, it seems like less time in the cab, but yeah. I mean, it's nice unless I want to go into San Francisco and like you know rub elbows with vagrants and come to a cocktail party. No, for sure, come to a cocktail party at my house. Yeah, that's what you're looking for. Do you have a lot of cocktail parties? I do like to have cocktail parties, but my favorite theme of cocktail party is this person is visiting, and uh, and that's a really nice yeah. So when people come in from out of town, that's a great excuse to throw a cocktail party and and watch people uh, meet new people and form connections. Is is that in the city or in the burbs? It's in the city in the Castro neighborhood. All right. Oh, I, I don't really know the neighborhoods there. very well, but Uber Well, does. it's just to say it's not right downtown. Right? It's not in Soma or downtown, but it's not far. And we have some public transportation in my neighborhood. I'll let you know when uh, when I know. I need to book my travel, actually. That's a good point. Um, and I'll, then I'll let you organize a party. I forgot. I have a, I'm talking about Apache Mahood at, a, at the Damel meetup on the 17th. So that's that's my plug for today. That's at a Galvanize in Seattle? I think so, yeah. Yep. So anybody in Seattle, come on out. There's me and then someone else. You can look it up. Some guy for, who's doing, uh, oh, it's like uh, data ethics. It's something about doing data analysis of eviction notices. I never heard of the guy, but it sounded, uh, I've never been evicted either. So I'll, I'll learn something on every level if I go, which I probably won't because I never go to meetups. 
Yep. Huge pain in the ass. Well, thanks again for uh, coming on and uh, arguing with us, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, Joel here. Just one correction. If you're going to ODSC West, my talk is Saturday, November 4th at 12.15. So uh, the 4th, not whatever date I said it was, which was wrong. And your usual announcements, uh, you can find us online, as always, at adversariallearning.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, that's adversarial underscore L. If you would like to drop us an email, that's adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you to the person who wrote last week and said that I sounded terrible on my built-in MacBook mic and I should use a real microphone. I used a real microphone this week, and I hope you can hear the difference. Uh, If you like the podcast, recommend it to your friends. Rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever podcasts are sold. See you next time.